And young people, you may be dismissed for Children's Church with the Piros. Yes. And we go sixth grade and down, taking all of their accoutrements with them. Have fun. All right. Matthew chapter 2. This morning I would like to preach a message entitled, Enter His Presence. Enter His Presence. Two Sundays ago, we considered the priority of worship as illustrated in the lives of the wise men and their coming to worship the Lord Jesus as a baby. Last Sunday we considered the profit or the benefits of worship. And this morning I want us to consider the pattern of worship. Now, next week... My goal in prayer is for us to climax with the person of worship, the Lord Jesus Christ on Christmas Sunday. So maybe the last two weeks and this morning, you're going to feel kind of like I felt at a graveside several years ago. I had preached the service for a lady who was a Jewish lady who had trusted Christ as Savior, but the unsaved family wanted a rabbi involved uh, in the graveside, and as I stood there and listened to him read Old Testament scripture to try to give hope, I kept sitting here. I wanted to say, Jesus! You know what I'm talking about? It was like Old Testament gets you right to the brink and the key is Jesus. So all that to say, you might be sitting here thinking, next Sunday. Okay, now, it's hard for me not to let some of it out today. Uh, we preach Christ and Him crucified. Amen? Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there's Matthew's surprise, 50 years after it happened, 20 years after Christ had gone back to heaven, behold, there came wise men from the east, to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star. Notice not just any star, but his star. And by the way, it's a very unique word, and I won't get into the astronomy of this, but it's a word that refers to a single star, not a cluster of stars. There's a different word that the Spirit of God would have used to refer to a cluster of stars. I know that blows some theories, but... Let's stick with the Bible, okay? We've seen his star and are come in the east and are come to worship him. So notice the wise men came, verse number one. Verse number two, they said themselves, we are come with the purpose, the sole purpose to worship him. Verse number four or three, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. It's interesting that Herod made the connection between king of the Jews and Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Where will Christ be born? And they, the chief priests and scribes, said unto him, notice the wise men are now getting the location pinpointed, in Bethlehem of Judea. It's important because there were two Bethlehems in Israel at that time, one up near Nazareth, some 70 miles north of Jerusalem, but one just five to six miles south and west of Jerusalem. But thou, or verse number five, and they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, 
For thus it is written by the prophet. And then they loosely quote Micah, the prophet, 700 years before Micah, the prophet. And thou, Bethlehem, verse number six, in the land of Judah are not least, are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Notice what Herod's doing. He's pinpointing location. He's pinpointing time. Verse number 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, uh, hypocritically, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Verse number 9, when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, behold, the idea, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Notice this star moved. It appeared, disappeared, reappeared, and moved. That's not normal. Okay. It's a supernatural star. The star stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come, third time the word come is used, when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped him, not his mother. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So this morning we consider a Bible pattern for worship, how to enter His presence, how to be aware of His presence, how to worship Him as only He deserves to be worshipped. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would strengthen our hearts, challenge us as we prepare for uh, this Christmas season, continue to do so, and to have a right perspective and not to be swallowed up in all the busyness and the commercialization. God, that you would help us to keep our eyes on Christ and to just as these wise men 2,000 years ago had as their, their sole purpose, we are come to worship him. I pray that that would be our goal in life as we approach the Christmas season. All that we're about is we are come to worship him. And I ask for your help in communicating these truths from Scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last night at men's prayer meeting, Dr. Shoemaker shared with me a, a little story, fictional, that he had heard about uh, late, two ladies were outside of a shopping center, and one of them was an unbeliever and looked at a nativity scene that had been set out and, and at the entrance of the, of the mall or the shopping center, and she got all offended and huffed, and she goes, look at that, even, even the Christians are trying to get in on Christmas now. Can I tell you where that comes from? It comes from the fact that a lot of Christians have gotten caught up in the commercialization of Christmas and have lost sight of the importance of entering His presence just like these wise men did. I read of a little boy this week who, after a good church service on a Sunday morning, had gone home and uh, was praying at lunch over the meal that his mama had prepared. And as they sat there at a family, he said, Lord, thank you so much for a very good church service today. The preaching was good. The singing was good. It was good to see other Christians. Uh, I just wish you would have been there. Out of the mouth of babes, right? A little boy who recognized there's a difference between having a good church service and actually meeting with the Lord. 
And so the importance of worship, the priority, the profit of it, but today we consider the pattern for it, some important guidelines and things to keep in mind as it relates to entering his presence consciously. I'm glad for the book of James chapter number four, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. And so the blessed responsibility that we have in this exercise of worship, I want you to understand as we think about a pattern for worship that really the very first step in following the pattern for worship is being in the place of worship. It's getting there. And you say, Pastor, you're talking to all of us who are here. I understand that. But I want you to notice, and I touched on this in reading the text, verse number one, behold their came wise men. And remember, uh, some have estimated they may have traveled as many as 1,700 miles one way to get there if they followed the Fertile Crescent. That's a long way to go for worship, isn't it? And all of the dangers that they uh, could have encountered on the way, not to mention the hornet's nest that was called Herod when they got to Jerusalem. When they get there, they begin asking just to people on the street, apparently, until they finally get to Herod. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen a star in the east and are come. The first step in the pattern of worship is to be there, to come to the place of worship. And then we notice down in verse number 11, and when they were come into the house, notice not the stable, but the house. This is another indication that this was a period of time after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in a rented house. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary's mother and fell down and worshipped him. But it began with coming. They came. They said, we are come to worship him. And when they were come, they fell down and worshipped him. Let me just remind us this morning, as we think about the pattern of worship and this important first step being in the place of worship, that there are two spheres of worship in the believer's life. The one that is most obvious to us is the one where we are sitting right now. Corporate worship where we participate together. Let me tell you, a person's not worshiping if they're a spectator. Okay, participation, involvement in the singing. You, you worship, you participate in worship by saying like Mary did to the angel, as you sit and listen to the preaching and the teaching of God's word, you worship by saying, be it unto me according to thy word. We worship with our submission in the corporate place as we participate together and how important that is. But there's also the closet place of worship, the private place of worship. And I fear many times in many believers' lives, and I'm not implying anything about us here this morning, but if all of us in our heart would just do business with the Lord and say it's a whole lot easier sometimes to come to the corporate place of worship than it is to frequent the private place of worship. And the necessity of that, the importance of it. So yes, coming to church, and, but also the daily private place of worship. Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. And I got to tell you, the, the older I get as a Christian, not biologically, but spiritually, the older I get as a Christian, the more I long to be in the secret place. And to commune with the Lord Jesus Christ 
Are there barriers to that, hurdles to that? Yes, sometimes, as we've mentioned to two weeks ago, sometimes it's just getting out of the bed and getting the cup of coffee and getting to the closet, to the chair, to the place with the Word, shutting out distractions and beginning the day. Early will I seek thee, the psalmist said. As we think about the importance of being in the place of worship and as it relates to corporate worship, the local church and gatherings like this one, I'm reminded of the story that Paul Harvey told years ago. The title of his story was President for a Day. I never knew this. This is a fascinating story. I never knew anything about this guy. But he told this story, President for a Day, and I think he began by asking, how many of you have ever thought of what it would be like to be president for just one day? And then to leave all the pressures behind, right? But do you know that in 1849, on a single day, March the 4th, was a Sunday in 1849, a senator from Missouri by the name of David Atchison became president pro tem for one day. Why was it? Well, the president before him had been a man by the name of James Monroe, and James Monroe's term ended on March the 3rd, 1849. The election for the next president had been won by a Mexican-American war hero by the name of Zachary Taylor. Zachary Taylor had basically been elected because he was electable, not because he wanted to be elected. As you study a little bit about his history, he really felt pressured into being the president. He'd been a war hero, and so his party thought, you know, we can gather behind him and get him elected. And you come to find out he was very reluctant as a president. But there was one area where he was not indecisive. Zachary Taylor was a faithful, church-going Christian. And he said, I will not be inaugurated on a Sunday. Now get this. Zachary Taylor's, or James Monroe's presidency ended on Saturday the 3rd of March. Sunday was the 4th of March. Monday was the 5th of March. And for one day, the country needed a president just in case something happened. So that Zachary Taylor could go to church. Zachary Taylor was quoted as saying this, going to church is a higher priority than becoming president of the United States. Many of us have been affected in a good way by the testimony of Joni Erickson Tata, paralyzed as a 17-year-old young lady, very active and athletic, but paralyzed in a diving accident, becoming a quadriplegic. And yet, in the grace of God, in 1982, the Lord brought her together in marriage with a young Japanese-American by the name of uh, Ken Tata. Joni Erickson Tata tells the story about how excited she was to come through the back doors of the auditorium, but in her wheelchair, her dress got caught up in the wheel, and it smudged grease on her dress, the, the, the hem of her dress, and tore the hem of her dress, the bouquet of flowers that she had so beautifully laid out on her lap that she couldn't hold with her hands. When she saw that her dress had gotten caught up, it had pulled the bouquet down and had kind of squashed it just as she was coming in the back door. And she said she was so upset about that. But then she said this. She said, the minute that those back doors opened and I saw my bridegroom, all of those things passed away from my mind. Her concerns about the disheveled flower bouquet, 
her concerns about a smudge and a tear on her wedding garment. The immediate sight of the groom removed all hesitations, removed all hindrances. They all subsided when she came into the presence of her groom. Whatever the hindrances, the hurdles may be, can I just say to you this morning, get to the presence of Jesus. And so as we think about a pattern for worship, we think about the importance of being there. But I want you to notice, secondly, in the pattern for worship, Another characteristic is that we're to have boldness in coming. We're to have boldness. Not just get there, but we can come boldly. I think about these wise men in verse number 10. Notice this. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. The Every indication of the description that is given here by Matthew under inspiration as he describes their rejoicing with exceeding great joy is that they were not quiet about it. There was a boldness. It was nighttime. They see the star appear as they leave Herod's palace or wherever they had met him. And I don't know how wise men from the east showed excitement, but it was visible. It was audible. Okay. There was a boldness. Now, as we think about boldness and coming to worship the Lord Jesus, we're not talking about a lot of the... Flippant boldness, the casual boldness that we see characterizing what is called worship today. We're not talking about that which is flippant. We're not talking about that which is trite. We're not talking about that which is arrogant. We are not talking about that which is man-centered. Vance Havner said years ago as it relates to the Sunday morning worship service that it begins at 11 o'clock sharp and ends at 12 o'clock dull. But do you know one of the reasons that is the case in so many churches is because if we're not careful, we come for ourselves, not for Him. But there's a boldness. Why was there a boldness with these wise men? Because these men, can I say it this way, to use an old historical analogy, these men viewed themselves as prospectors, as seekers, who at the end of a long search had found what they were looking for, who they were looking for. There can be boldness in our coming into his presence to worship when we view ourselves, according to Psalm 16, as a condemned individual set free by the grace of God. The psalmist David said to the Lord, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption in thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. When you view yourself as someone who's been delivered from deserved condemnation by the grace of God through the the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, it allows you to come boldly into his presence. When you view yourself, according to Hebrews 4 and verse number 16, as a child coming into the presence of your father, the author of Hebrews said this, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. The literal idea is come as a child. I've heard stories of people who have witnessed uh, great men in some kind of important ceremony and one of their children would break loose from their handler (laughs) and would run in the midst of the ceremony into the presence of their famous parent, their famous father. What is a good father going to do? As that child boldly breaks into that scene, he's going to receive that child. 
We can have boldness in coming when we come as a child. I want you to keep your hand in Matthew and look at this passage, Hebrews chapter number 10 and verse number 19. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19 The author of Hebrews is making a significant transition in his uh, writing here, transitioning from the Old Testament understanding and the limited access that Old Testament saints had to the presence of God. But now, notice Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by what? The blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. In the Old Testament, only the high priest could go into the holiest place, and that once a year on the Day of Atonement. But because of the work of Christ, because of the shedding of his blood that washes away all sin for all who will trust him, you and I now as believer priests, not the office of high priest, but every child of God as a believer priest with boldness as a cleansed sinner can come into the presence of the one who redeemed us. We don't come flippantly. We come with gratitude. We come with joy and thanksgiving. It's not about arrogance. It's not about us. It's about the one who made the way for us to come. The one who just like when God etched that veil from top to bottom at the time of Christ's death. And then the Bible tells us through Hebrews chapter number 10 that the rending of Christ's flesh was pictorial of the rending of the veil through the rending of his flesh on the cross. The way has been opened for you and for me to come boldly into the presence of God. So in worship we come boldly. Psalm 100, we quoted it last week, pictures us. We can have boldness in coming when we come as a creature who is made alive and given everything that we have by our Creator. And so the the first step, if you would, for us to consider when it relates to entering His presence is to just be in the place of worship, whether it's the private place or the corporate place. Secondly, we come with boldness into His presence. Thirdly, our coming into His presence to worship, I want you to notice this, needs to be Bible-directed. According to the Scripture, according to God's direction in His Word, Notice, if you would, verses 4 through 6 again. The wise men inquire, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Herod consults with, he gathers all the chief priests and scribes of the people together and demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, For thus it is written by the prophet Micah. They name the location. Now, here's what I want you to do in your mind. As we think about the importance of our entering His presence being according to the direction of God's Word, directed by the Bible. If we start with Micah chapter 5, think about the search that these guys had been on, the journey they had been on to come into the presence of the Lord. They get here and they find the final piece, if you would. And so we're going to start at Micah 5 too and move backwards, if you would, in their search. And we'll come back to Micah 5, 2 at the end of this message this morning. But the prophet Micah said, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Israel, yet out of thee shall he come forth to me who is to be ruler of my people Israel. 
And so the scribes refer to this passage to help pinpoint the exact location where Messiah would be born and answer the question where to find him. But as we move back a step from that, how did they know that a star would be associated with his birth? We've seen a star in the east. It's very likely that they had heard of Balaam's prophecy Numbers chapter 24 and verse number 17 when Balaam was giving counsel to Balak, king of the Moabites, about how to handle this nation of Israelites that had just come out of Egypt. And Balak was looking for a way to curse the children of Israel, a way to destroy the children of Israel. And Balaam, though he was a wicked man, he knew enough to understand that there was nothing Balak could do to get rid of the Jewish people. He said, in fact, and he gave this prophecy, Numbers 24 and verse number 17, there shall come a star out of Jacob and a scepter, symbolic of a king who would rule. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And then the verse goes on to say, and shall smite the corners of Moab. Boy, that was bad news for Balak, wasn't it? And yet likely these wise men had associated Numbers 24, 17, a prophecy that spoke of a star that informed them. and They understood that there was a star that would be associated with the birth of this king. But we go back even further and we ask this question, how did they know to look for a king who would be born as a child instead of an adult man like Herod? who would be appointed, who would assert his place, who would usurp the throne? How did they know that it would be a child that was born? They likely would have had access to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now, we can speculate on how they would have had access, but I know this. There was a very key man in Babylon after Isaiah the prophet who had, by his own testimony, copies of Jeremiah's prophecy, and a man like Daniel likely had a full copy of the Old Testament. And so these wise men, because of the connection with Babylon and the East and where Daniel would have spent his entire life and ministry, these men would have likely known of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, that they were to be looking for a child-born king not an adult king. Because Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus was born, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name, if you know it, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And I love verse number 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Are you seeing what's happening here as as they're moving in the direction of worship? Everything is being directed by the Word of God. Not man's idea, not man's longing for experience, not borrowing from the world, so to speak, but what does God say? We're letting God through His Word direct us. How did they know the timing at this particular time in history? 
I don't have time to go into all the exegesis of this, but Daniel chapter 9. Remember, Daniel would have already been in Babylon in the east. Matter of fact, it's believed by some reputable historians that Daniel was the founder of the group of wise men of which these guys were a part. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, Daniel, by revelation from the Lord, is given a detailed chronology of the coming history. You said you said history, not prophecy. Exactly. Because prophecy is God's history written in advance. If he gave it as prophecy, it's as good as history. Okay? And he gives a timeline. And he says, Know therefore and understand, the angel on behalf of the Lord tells Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be 69 weeks. He totaled up 62 and 7. Okay, which is totals in that chronology 483 years. So now get this, from the time that the command was given to restore and to build Jerusalem, that command was given by the Persian emperor Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. Using the Jewish year of 360 days as opposed to 365 days, you start at 444 B.C., and you come forward, you add 483 Jewish years, and it literally lands you at the time that Messiah was cut off in 30 A.D. on Passover. In answer to the question of time, and in that passage of Scripture, they would have understood that this would have related to Jerusalem, that it was Messiah the Prince, the ruler of the people of Israel. They would have understood that he would be cut off, but not for himself. Maybe that is what informed the wise man who gave the gift of myrrh, which was symbolic of the anointing for death. you got to see Isaiah chapter 60. A final point here before we move, move on. Isaiah chapter 60. Now, this is predominantly speaking of the millennial kingdom. But I want you to think about it. These guys would have had access to the Isaiah's prophecy in Babylon or wherever they were from in the east. They would have had access. I thought about this this week, too. This is totally a rabbit trail, okay? But just bear with me on this. As you're turning to Isaiah 60. You know, Daniel was the prime minister, if you would, of a number of Babylonian, Median, and Persian emperors. Persia is modern-day Iran. Can you imagine a Jewish man being the prime minister of Iran? Wow. Isaiah chapter 60. How would these wise men have understood their part as they're seeking to let the Bible direct them to inform their worship, to guide their worship, how they worshiped Christ? I want you to notice Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. This is God talking to the nation of Israel. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. Can you think about the night Christ was born when the angels lit up the night sky and the glory of God was revealed? Verse number 3, notice this. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light. And kings, to the brightness of thy rising. That's the terminology of a star rising in the night sky. 
Lift up thine eyes round about and see. And all they gather themselves together. They come to thee. Talking about the Gentiles coming to the light of Messiah in the nation of Israel. Thy son shall come from far and thy daughter shall be nursed at thy side. Then thou shalt see and flow together and thine heart shall fear and be enlarged because the abundance of the sea in the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. The sea is often a picture of humanity as a whole. The abundance of the sea shall be converted unto thee. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The word forces speaks of wealth. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come unto thee, the nation of Israel, because of Messiah coming out of the nation of Israel. But I want you to notice verse number 6. This proves that a nativity scene with camels in it is biblical. I've heard people say, well, the Bible never said in Matthew chapter number 2 that the wise men rode camels. Listen to verse number 6. The multitude of camels shall cover thee. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, these are both regions east of Jerusalem and Israel. All they from Sheba. This is believed to be uh, equated to modern day Saudi Arabia shall come. They shall bring what? Gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. I I can't help but think that these guys were looking at Isaiah chapter 60, and they said, hey, we've got a part in this. Let's be the first ones to see this passage as a reality. And so they looked to the Bible to answer the question of who to worship, what worship was like, when to worship, where they would find the one to worship, why they worshiped, and how they would worship. The importance of the Bible to our worship. After Billy Sunday, the great evangelist had gone to be with the Lord, and the flyleaf of his Bible were found written these words. Listen, as it relates to the importance of the Bible in leading us to Christ and worship. He said this, 29 years ago, with the Holy Spirit as my guide, I entered at the portico of Genesis and walked down the corridor of the Old Testament art galleries where pictures of Noah, Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Isaac, Jacob, and Daniel hung on the wall. I passed into the music room of the Psalms where the Spirit of God sweeps the keyboard of nature until it seems that every reed and pipe in God's great organ responds to the harp of David, the sweet singer of Israel. I entered the chamber of Ecclesiastes where the voice of the preacher is heard and into the conservatory of Sharon in the lily of the valley where sweet spices filled and perfumed my life. He's referring to Song of Solomon. I entered the business office of Proverbs and on into the observatory of the prophets where I saw telescopes of various sizes pointing to far-off events concentrating on the bright morning star which was to rise above the moonlit hills of Judea for our salvation and redemption. I entered the audience room of the King of Kings catching a vision written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John Thence into the correspondence room with Paul, Peter, James, and John writing their epistles. I stepped into the throne room of Revelation where tower the glittering peaks, where sits the King of Kings upon his throne of glory with the healing of the nations in his hand. And I cried out, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him Lord of all. As we develop a pattern for our worship, We need to make sure that it's according to the direction of the Bible. 
pattern for worship also includes bowing before him, as we see in verse number 11. They came into the presence of the young child and his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. It means prostrate, prostrate. It is not just the posture of the knee, but the posture of the heart. And I believe we could stand to do more of both. They fell down and worshipped him. Worship, symbolic of humility, symbolic of adoration, symbolic of submission, symbolic of obedience. Worship is ascribing worth to Christ in every area of our life. Based on his revelation of himself, who he is, and his redemption of us, he is worthy alone of our worship. In the 10th century AD, there was a unique king by the name of Canute. Europe was laid out differently then than it is today. And Canute was the king of the combined nations of Denmark, Norway, and the British Isles. At a point in his reign, he became perturbed by the flattery of his subjects in his court. How they would grovel in order to get what they wanted or special privilege or position or place. He had been formerly a pagan who had, at least on the outside, become a Christian. He became frustrated with all of the groveling and how he was being treated as king. And one day, in frustration, he ordered his throne to be picked up from the palace and carried to the beach of the Atlantic Ocean at low tide. He had his throne set out far on the sand at low tide, had his entire court gather around his throne. And then as the tide began to come in, Canute famously, history tells us, (laughs) looks at the tide and said, I am Canute, the ruler of Denmark and Norway and all the British Isles. They all bow to my command. And I say to the tide, stop, do not come in. And you guessed it, the tide kept coming in. And as he and his court found themselves standing in ankle-deep water, and then calf-deep water, and then knee-deep water, and the water sloshing against his throne, he turned around with, I'm sure, a, a sense of triumph. And he looked at his court, and he said to them these words, Let all men know. How empty and worthless is the power of earthly kings. For there is none worthy of the name king, but he whom heaven and earth and sea obey by his eternal laws. Let us bow before the king, because that is part of the pattern of worship. And then fifthly and finally, the Bible tells us that these men in coming to worship, as they establish a pattern for us, they brought their treasures. We'll talk more about this next week, Lord willing, but they brought gold, which in that time was symbolic of a king's treasure. They brought frankincense, which was symbolic of the one who was priest making intercession, the incense being offered 
symbolic of a priest praying and making intercession on behalf of those he serves. They brought myrrh, which as many of you know was used as an embalming fluid. But as you look at the Old Testament, you'll find that more than being mentioned in that context, myrrh is mentioned in Esther chapter 2 and verse number 12 uh, as the oil of myrrh that helped prepare Esther to meet the king. In Psalm 45 and verse number 8, it is myrrh that is part of the aroma of King Solomon's wedding day. In Song of Solomon, that great manual of husband and wife love, seven times myrrh is mentioned as the perfume of love. When you put those two thoughts, both the embalming fluid and the fact that it is an aroma an oil that is associated with love, it becomes a picture of the sacrifice of Christ's love. The Bible says that these men, in bringing their treasures, they opened their treasures. In the first century, the word that is used for treasures, that they opened it literally is this, they opened their caskets. What is a casket nowadays? It's where you put the sum total of your earthly remains when you die. To open their treasures, their caskets, it was symbolic of their offering at the feet of this little baby who all the Bible direction has pointed out, this is the king. They're offering him, making available to him, making at his disposal the sum total of all that they were and ever would be surrendered to him. Recently, a survey of believers asked them what the greatest challenge to their growth and worship was. Do you know what's at the top of the list? Materialism. Second on the list was pride. Third on the list, self-centeredness. Fourth on the list, laziness. Fifth on the list, anger, bitterness. Sixth on the list, sexual lust. Seven, envy. Number eight, gluttony. Number nine, lying. But materialism, pride, self-centeredness, laziness, at the top of the list. (laughs) Do you know that the U.S. in 2022 will spend more on garbage bags than the gross domestic product of the Solomon Islands where Michael and Nora minister? It's estimated this year Americans will spend 200 or 2.43 billion dollars on garbage bags. The GDP of the Solomon Islands is 1.6 billion. Part of worship is bringing our treasures, laying them at his feet, and one of the great enemies of that is materialism. Now, pastor, I'm concluding. Now, pastor, we know where we fit in this economy. There are no millionaires in this auditorium as far as we know. We understand that. I understand that. I like what Christina Rossetti wrote in her Christmas carol in the 1800s titled In the Bleak Midwinter. I want to read you the early verses. Verse number two. Our God, heaven cannot hold him nor earth sustain Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, talking about his first coming, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. 
Enough for him, this is verse 3, enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breast full of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him who angels fall down before the ox and ass and camel which adore. In the early verses of her Christmas carol in the bleak midwinter, she is just overwhelming us with what it took and what it pictured for God to become man. And how it sufficed him. Think of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might be rich. And so what was the last verse of Christina Rossetti's Christmas carol? She thought about the richness that Christ had provided, the sacrifice he made. She struggled with the question, what can I give him? Poor as I am, if I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I'll give him all my heart. What does that look like? What does that translate to? How does that apply for you? It may be that you have earthly treasures, money, and the casket of your life needs to be opened before King Jesus. It may be talents that God has given to you, gifts and abilities to minister to others, to be Christ's hands and voice and heart in the lives of fellow believers and unbelievers alike. It may be that you have the gift of time. I think about some of you older folks who are in your retirement years and the tremendous resource of time that you have. It may be that your gift, your treasure is your tongue. God has specifically gifted you, uniquely gifted you to be a faithful witness for Christ. By the way, all of us should be. It may be for the young people in our midst today that what you can give are your tomorrows. You have your whole life before you as far as we know. You have tomorrows to give. Lord, here's my future. The sum total of whatever I have left, you take it and you use it. I want to close with this. Micah chapter 5 and verse number 2, the passage that the chief priests and scribes quoted, says this, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth to me that's to be ruler of my people Israel. It's making a concession. It's referring to the insignificance of Bethlehem. In and of itself, Bethlehem is not worth that much. Among the thousands of Judah, look at how little and insignificant Bethlehem is. And yet, that's the place 700 years before Jesus came that Micah prophesied where Jesus would be born. It's a powerful Old Testament prophecy. It's the same prophecy that the chief priests and scribes brought up. I want you to notice, if you would, though, an interesting expansion of the idea. See verse number 6. Matthew chapter 2. And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. Now notice, he doesn't, they don't quote it as a concession. Though thou be little among the thousands. Notice what they say. Thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. They make a statement. 
They're paraphrasing, they're adding some commentary based on the time that it elapsed, and the Spirit of God put it in Scripture the way they quoted it. I want you to notice, they don't make a concession referring to Bethlehem, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth to me. Notice what they do, they state a fact. They say this, you are not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Do you see the lesson the Spirit of God wants us to get? And that is this. In and of ourselves, a place like Bethlehem in and of itself, in our own lives, are insignificant in and of themselves. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee. But listen. As the song said, when we make a Bethlehem of our heart and our life, that is what gives us significance. And the scripture, when you compare Micah 5, 2 and Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 6, the scripture makes it clear that when Bethlehem made a place for Christ, it raised it on the scale of significance. And I want you to understand this in your heart and mine. When we give Christ his deserved and rightful place. That's what gives us significance. When we enter his presence and allow him to sit on the throne of our hearts and we worship according to his pattern. If a person doesn't know Christ as Savior, if you're here today and that describes you, you don't know Christ as Savior, let me tell you what will give you eternal significance is when you make room for Christ in your life and give him the preeminence. To believers, you know what gives your life significance? Is when you open the treasure of your life and you say, here's my Bethlehem, Jesus. It's all yours. So the pattern for worship. Father, as we conclude this morning, I pray that our hearts would be moved to surrender like never before. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.